Welcome to Divine Truth Podcast with Dr. Stephen M. Huffman. Michael is a senior pastor with Emmanuel Baptist Church in beautiful Central Virginia. The purpose of this podcast is to teach and edify God's people through a verse-by-verse exposition of God's Word. To learn more about Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit www.ebcmineral.com. And now, here is Pastor Michael Huffman. chapter 1 uh, tonight. We want to continue looking at what's going on with Ruth. We, we've already seen where Ruth and Elimelech have, have left Bethlehem going to Moab because of a famine. Uh, so they're, they travel about 75 miles, 75 to 90 miles as a crow flies, the best we can calculate it, because they have to go around the, uh, the Dead Sea in order to get there. So the best we can calculate is about probably closer to 85 to 95 miles on foot to get there. And so they get to Moab, and uh, Elimelech dies while they're there. We don't know how long they were there, but Elimelech dies. And then after Elimelech dies, uh, uh, their two boys, Maal and Chilion, uh, they marry two Moabites women by the name of Orpah and Ruth. And, of course, we looked at together what the Moabites actually believed. They were a pagan nation that believed that uh, worshipped the false god Chemosh. Uh, they believed in child sacrifice. They would actually bring their infant children upon the altar of Chemosh and sacrifice them uh, upon the altar of that false god. And so they did not believe in the one true living God. They, they practiced very pagan rituals. And so these were the type of women that these Jewish boys married. And of course, you, we look together back at Leviticus, uh, the fact that God had commanded the, the boys, the men, not to allow their sons to marry their daughters because they said, if you allow your sons to marry their daughters, what's going to happen? Well, exactly what happened. They said, your sons are going to go, God's words were, they're going to go a whoring after their gods. And that's exactly what they did. And we talked about the fact that rarely, in my experience, and probably yours as well, rarely have we ever noticed where the godly brings up the ungodly, but it's usually the godly that takes down the, the ungodly that takes down the godly. But here's the fact, folks, that even if on the off chance the godly raises the ungodly to a level of salvation, you are still living in disobedience by being involved with that ungodly person. Irregardless of the situation, God gave a clear, crystal clear cut command to the nation of Israel. He gives the same command to his church in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, and chapter 6, verse 17, that we are to come out from among them. And so to have fellowship with someone who is unsaved in that regard, even if on the off chance they wind up being saved, you have still lived in disobedience by being there in the first place. And so the ends do not ever, when it comes to Christianity, the ends do not ever justify the means. Just because, uh, that's just because God may be gracious and you have a good result doesn't, and the way that you got there was sinful or unscriptural, that does not make the, re, the way that you did it correct. So we need to keep that in mind in our life as well. And that's where we see uh, these, this family at this time. Well, then lo and behold, what happens next? Well, the two, the two husbands die. And now we've got Naomi. We've got Orpah, and we've got Ruth. And they remain in Moab for approximately 10 years. And that's where we pick up the story. And we want to talk this evening, for what time that we've got, about a testimony of deception. Because there's a lot of what I see in this text, some deception going on. Uh, the book of Ruth doesn't start out very, starts out colorful, but doesn't start out very holy. 
Uh, God intervenes graciously, sovereignly intervenes in, in the life of Ruth uh, and, and causes something good to come out of this like God always does. But does that, folks, listen, this is one of those illustrations. Just because God allowed and sovereignly inter- intervened and allowed a good result to come out of that, does that justify the actions of Kilon to marry Ruth? No, it doesn't justify his actions. He was still wrong to do it. It was all part of God's master plan, and God had a purpose, and the purpose was ultimately Ruth's salvation. But as I said before, the ends never justify the means. If it's unscriptural to do, even if God is gracious and gives us a good result, it's still not good to get into that uh, practice at all. So here's where we are. And we want to look at three testimonies tonight, or or as far as we get. We want to look at Naomi's testimony. We want to look at Orpah's testimony and we want to look at, look at Ruth's testimony. This may take us into two weeks from now, because, of course, we don't have service next Wednesday. So this may take us into two weeks from now. It depends on how many questions you have and how fast I can talk. So, uh, but I'm not going to be in any rush here. And let me just say to you real quick, we got a very exciting study we're starting on this coming Lord's Day. I've never done it before. Uh, it is very, very, I'm very, very excited about it. Would you like to know what it was? Then you'll have to be here Sunday and find out. But I'm very, very excited about it. It's going to be, like I said, I've never done this before. And, uh, and yeah, it is in the Bible. I'm not going to do jumping jacks for you. It is in the Bible. Uh, I've just never, I've, we just never studied this together before. So I'm very, very excited about it. And I trust you will be as well uh, when you hear where we're going. Um, but that's for another day. Let's look first of all, as we get to point number one, let's look at Ruth's testimony. Oh, I'm sorry, the testimony of Naomi. I can't read my own script up here. The testimony of Naomi. You would think that really the overall testimony of Naomi is really found in the fact that God visited His faithful people in Bethlehem again, but did not visit His disobedient daughter in Moab. Naomi had heard the good news that the famine had ended in Bethlehem, okay? And so when she heard the good news, she decided, well, it's time for me to go home. You know, as I thought about that little, little idea there, I thought about the fact that how sad it is when we, as God's people, we have to hear about God blessing people, but we don't experience it. We sometimes hear about God being good to this person or, or God blessing this ministry or God, but, we, but we, have, we hear about it, but we don't experience it. Or you find out what a wonderful church service that you had at your church and you were somewhere else. Because sometimes that happens, doesn't it? We have to hear about blessings and we don't experience it ourselves because we're not in a place where God can bless us. You know the most reaction of people who are not in the place of blessing and they hear other people have been blessed? You know what most of the fact most of the reactions are? Anger. Anger. And Naomi seems to have fallen in to that line of thinking, the line of thinking of anger as we, as we see what happens to her when she returns to Bethlehem. Naomi truly is a bitter woman. Now, I'm not saying that God killed her husband, Elimelech, because he took his family to Moab. I'm not going to go out on that limb, because the Bible doesn't say that. But Naomi is truly, at this point in her life, she is truly a bitter woman. 
And as it will become clear as we look at her, she is truly a woman that is angry with the Lord. You know, sometimes we pray, Lord, bless me. Lord, Lord, bless this. And, and, but it, instead, of be, instead of praying sometimes, because God does want to bless us, doesn't he? And so, so instead of praying, God, bless me, maybe we need to be praying, God, make me blessable. Lord, make sure that I'm so close to you that I am always in the place of blessing. That I'm always in a position where you can bless me. Lord, may my life and my heart be such as you bless me freely because I am where I can be blessed. A lot of times we ask God to bless us and we're so far from the, from the realm of blessing it's not even, God couldn't, it's not even funny and God's not going to bless us. Instead of, so instead of saying, God bless me, maybe we should be saying, God, make me blessable. Well, as I look at Naomi's testimony, there's two, there's two issues that, that I see in this text. Number one, there was no confession. There was no confession. Look at verse 6. The Bible says, And then she arose with her daughters-in-law, that they might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab how the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. Wherefore, she went forth out of the place where she was, and her two daughter-in-laws with her, and they went on the way to return unto the land of Judah. Folks, listen, whenever you and I have disobeyed the Lord and we've departed from His will, what's the number one thing that needs to happen? Confession. And not only is there no confession here, but you look at, you read the entire book, Naomi never confesses that she did anything wrong. We see, for example, Abraham in Genesis chapter 13. Remember Abraham went to Egypt and lied to the Pharaoh, said Sarah was his sister? Twice, and Pharaoh says, I'm kicking you out. I'm building a wall, kicking you out. What did Abraham do? In Genesis chapter 13, the Bible says he went back and built an altar. In fact, he went back to the altar that he had abandoned to go to Egypt, and he confessed his sin before the Lord. Likewise, Jacob, when he went back to Bethel in chapter 35 of Genesis, he did the same thing. He went back to the altar. Altar, of course, is a symbol and a picture of confession and sacrifice. When these men, these patriarchs, went back to the altar, they were going back to sacrifice, they were going back to confess. That is something that's missing in the testimony of Naomi. Because, listen, church, wherever there is sin, there must be a confession of that sin. That was the consistent plea of the prophets for the nation of Israel. In Isaiah chapter 55, for example, verse 7, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord. And he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. But something is missing with Naomi. Something is very wrong with Naomi. Her decision was right. But I believe her motives were still wrong. Notice the words of Naomi. They are not, girls, it was sinful for us to be here, and I have sinned by remaining here, and I confess this sin, and I'm returning to the land of my people where the true and living God is worshipped. That's not what Naomi says. No, the, what interested her was the fact that there was food again in her land. 
There was no indication for, there was no indication here of confession, no indication here that she asked God to forgive her. She was returning to the land, but she was not returning to the Lord, folks. When you and I have sinned, we just don't pick up where we left off as if nothing ever happened. There must be confession and there must be restitution. Well, you say, Pastor, I thought the Lord forgave us at the cross. He did. There is no eternal. You are, you are not bound eternally by the actions of your life. But in order for there to remain fellowship, what has to happen? Huh? Confession. Confession. There's a big difference in Naomi between returning to the land and returning to the Lord. There's a big difference, folks, with being repentant and just being tired of struggling. Uh, I'm so tired of the way my life is going, I'm going back to church. There's a big difference between that and actually repenting of going away from the Lord and being restored and coming back. There's a big difference. And that's what was missing in the life of Naomi. Sometimes people return. Not so much for being repentant that they have defied the holiness and the goodness of God, but because they're hungry or because they're tired. And while those things are possibly true, if there's not, first of all, church, a, a, a sorrow for the offense against the name and the character of God, then what happens? The sin is oftentimes repeated. If there's no confession and no forsaking of the sin that caused you to leave in the first place, if you come back just because of any other reason than the fact, you know, I'm tired, I, you know, things are going bad in my life, I need to get myself back in church, but there's no confession, then usually the thing that got you out of church the first time before long, it turns around and it's, and, and it's gotten you out of church again. And you all have seen it in people's lives, haven't you? We all have seen that. Because we will see from Naomi when we get to the end of the chapter, she was not repentant. She was hungry. Because by the time we get to the end of this chapter, she goes back into Bethlehem, she's still mad at the Lord. There's a big difference. One is, one is a Godward repentance. And the other is a human sorrow. Because it was the sin that led to the confession, if it's not the, if it's not the, the, the heinousness of the sin, the crime against the holiness of God that leads to the confession, then the sorrow is generally short-lived. Generally short-lived. There was no confession. And that was problem number one with Naomi's confession with Naomi's testimony. But number two, not only there was no confession, but there was also no confrontation. There was no confrontation. Look at verse 8. Naomi said unto her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as ye have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that ye may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voice and wept. And they said unto her, Surely we will return with thee unto thy people. 
It kind of seems apparent to me in this verse that Naomi didn't want these two girls to go back to Bethlehem with her. Doesn't it do you? wonder why. You know, if it was right for Naomi to go back to Bethlehem, where the true and living God was worshipped, then why wouldn't it have been right for Orpah and Ruth to return to Bethlehem? I mean, Naomi tried to convince these two women to go back to their families, right? That's not a big problem, is it? But what else was she trying to convince these two girls to do? By going back to, by going back to Moab and going back to their families, what were they also going back to? Their pagan gods. So here you've got a believing Jewish woman, a daughter of Abraham, encouraging two of her daughter-in-laws to go back to their pagan worship. There's something really wrong going on in Naomi's heart here. When she's trying to convince these two girls to go back in paganism. I mean, she knew for no other reasons in the 10 plus years that she has spent in Moab the kind of God that they served. She understood at this point what the, what the worship of Chemosh was like. And she's telling these two daughter-in-laws, no, I'm going back by myself. You go back there and worship your false gods. Don't come with me. You go back and you continue to practice your paganism. Don't come with me. There's something very wrong about that attitude. Now, my assumption that Naomi may be wrong right now, I've been known to be wrong one or two hundred thousand times. But the reason I, one of the reasons I think that Naomi did not want Orpah and Ruth to go back to Bethlehem with her is because they would be living proof that she and her husband had allowed their two sons to marry outside of the covenant nation. And her pride didn't want to face that. She didn't want to go back to Bethlehem, and everybody would see, everybody would know that Orpah and Ruth were Moabitess, and so then they would know that, well, you, what are you and Elimelech doing letting these two boys marry unsaved girls? What are you two covenant people doing letting your sons marry outside of the covenant people? What is Ruth doing? She's trying to cover up her disobedience. If she, because if she returned home alone, no one would ever know that she broke the law of Moses. But if these two went back with her, yeah, that's a problem. And get this, she was so determined to cover up her disobedience. She is so bitter against God, and she's so far off of the fellowship with Yahweh that she was willing to to sacrifice the spiritual purity of these two girls and send them back to paganism, then swallow her pride and admit to the people in Bethlehem, I messed up, but let's see if we can minister to these two girls. Something very, very going wrong going on in the heart of Naomi. You know, the Bible makes it plain for us in Proverbs chapter 28 and verse 13, he that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy and this, and Naomi's issue was that there was no confrontation there was no confrontation with her sin folks when we try to cover our sins it is proof that we really do not honestly want to face them and be judged by uh, them by according to the word of God because listen true repentance and involves an honest confession and a brokenness within. The psalmist said in Psalm 51 and verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, 
A broken and contrite heart, O God, Thou wilt not despise. Instead of brokenness over what she had done, over what her family had done, Naomi had bitterness. Naomi had bitterness. You say, well, Pastor, you're giving Naomi a hard time because it was a Limelech that took her, that took her to uh, Moab. It was a Limelech that allowed Malon and Chilion to marry those two uh, pagan girls. That's true, but it was Naomi that remained in Moab for 10 years. That's on her. That's on her. It was all about, with Naomi, it was all about what people thought about her. And while there's enough blame with the Limonek to go around, the fact of the matter is it was Naomi who tried to convince these two girls to go back to worship her pagan gods. That's on Naomi. That's not on her dead husband. She did not return to Bethlehem because she was repentant. She turned, because she, again, because she was hungry, as evidenced by the fact that she tried to cover it up. Had Naomi been the woman of God that she needed them to be, maybe perhaps she could have won Orpah to faith, and then she would have brought back to Bethlehem two trophies of grace had she been the woman that she needed to be. But the testimony of Naomi is no confession and no confrontation. Verse 8 again, let's read it again. And Naomi said unto her daughter-in-law's, Go, return each to her mother's house, and the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voice and wept. Well, that's a testimony of Naomi. No confrontation, no confession. She wasn't going back to Naomi because she was, she wasn't going back to Bethlehem because she was repentant. She was going back because she was hungry. Number two, let's look at the testimony of Orpah. The testimony of Orpah. Now these two girls, according to verse 7, they start out on the journey with Naomi. And somewhere in the travels, Naomi stopped and urged them to, to go back. And when Naomi saw that the girls were hesitant, she started to reason with them. And these are very legitimate reasons that Naomi gave. And she went back to the law of God. Number one, she went back to the rule of the, the Leverite marriage. And you say, well, what's that? I'm glad you asked. The rule of the Leverite marriage. Notice what Naomi says in verse 11. And Naomi said, Turn again, my daughters. Why will ye go with me? Are there yet any more sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn again, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband also tonight, and should also bear sons, would ye wait for them till they were grown? Would you stay or wait for them from having husbands or keep yourself from having husbands? Nay, my daughters, for it grieveth me much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. See, it's all God's fault. It's all God's fault. And what was the Leverite marriage? 
And that's, what, that's really what Naomi's making reference to here is the Leverite marriage. The law concerning the Leverite marriage was found in one place in the Old Testament, and that's Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 5. It's referred to in, in other places, even in the New Testament. But the law is actually given in Deuteronomy 25, 5. If brethren dwell together, here's the law, if brethren dwell together, and one of them dies and has no child. Now, when the Bible says that they dwell together, that doesn't necessarily mean that they lived in the same home. What it means is, is that one of them is married and one of them, and right now neither one of them are married, because, uh, or this says means the younger one is not married. Okay, the one dies, and they have no child. The wife of the dead shall not marry without unto a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go in unto her and take her to be his wife and perform the duty of an husband's brother unto her. Simply stated this, the law of God simply stated this, that if you have a brother of a dead man who died childless, he was to marry the widow in order to provide an heir for the family name. Okay, that was the Leverite marriage. Because the, 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 the desire was to carry on the family, to carry on the name of the family, to carry on the rightful heirs of the property and all that. And so this brother dies. This brother, if he doesn't have any children, meaning he's not married, then he is to go wed the widow of his brother. And it, and it also helped maintain property rights. Now, the Lord was pretty serious about this. This isn't one of those regulations, these laws that God just winked at or by. He was pretty serious about this. Because in Genesis chapter 38, we have the story about Judah. Okay? Now, Judah and Onan were kind of in the same situation. Judah, of course, one of the sons of Jacob. And uh, the Bible says there in verse 8, And Judah said unto Onan, Go into Go in unto your brother's wife and marry her and raise up seed to that brother. And Onan knew that the seed should not be his. And it came to pass when he went into his brother's wife that he spilled it on the ground lest, lest that he should give seed to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord. And so what did God do? God killed him. God killed him. Then said Judah to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow at thy father's house till Shelah, my son, be grown. For he said, Lest preadventure he die also, and as his brother, brethren did. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. Okay? So let me give you a little background here. Onan was the second son of Judah and a Canaanite woman by the name of Shua. And she conceived that she had a son, and his name was Er. E-R. An heir married a woman by whose name was Tamar. Not David's Tamar, obviously. But he married a woman by the name of Tamar. And the Bible says there in Genesis chapter 30, verse 7, that Er did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. Judah also had a second son whose name was Onan. And after Er died... Judah told Onan to go into your brother's wife Tamar and marry her so that you can raise up a seed, a child, to your, as your brother's heir. Now because Er was the firstborn, 
Any child that he had would have gotten the right of position of family leadership and he would have gotten an heir and any of his heritage, his offspring, would have received a double portion of the father's inheritance. But what Onan wanted to do was that he was desiring to take over his brother's spot, not as the wife of Tamar, not as the husband of Tamar, but as the firstborn. So that his sons would receive a double portion of the father's inheritance. And there was only one way he could do that, right? I need to make sure that my brother's wife does not really have a child. Wouldn't have been a problem if it was a girl. But I need to make sure. They didn't have ultrasounds back in then, but even if they did, it doesn't matter. What's done is done. And so I need to make sure that this brother of mine, this brother's wife of mine, does not have a child. So what happens? The Bible says he spills his seed on the ground. And the Bible says, I think, displeased the Lord. That was the only way that Onan could make sure that his brother's wife did not conceive. And it displeased the Lord. Why did it displease the Lord? Because the point of the whole Liverite marriage was this, so that the name of the family could be carried on. Let me ask you a question. What would have happened to the line of David had Boaz, and we're going to get to this later on in the study, what would have happened to the line of David if Boaz had not done what he should have done? What would have happened to the line of David? It would have been broken. So who else's line would have been broken? The line of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ came right out from the line of Ruth and Boaz. Boaz and Ruth gave birth to Obed, who was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David, whose line Jesus Christ comes down. So if Boaz had not done his job, then he would have completely obliterated the, line, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And so that's why, that's why God says, be obedient even in the things that you think are small. Because there's a reason why God tells us to do what he tells us to do. There's a reason why God tells us to do them how he tells us to do them. Marriage was required. Okay, if you had a brother, his wife who died and he was married and you did not have any children, you were not married, you were required by the Leverite law to marry that woman. Not live with her, but marry her. In fact, that's what the, the law talks about in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 16. Thou shalt not uncover the nakedness of thy brother's wife. It is thy brother's nakedness. That basically is referring to you're not to have a, uh, an adulterous, immoral affair with your, adult, with your brother's wife. You're to marry her. You're to marry her. And so this was the law, probably, that Naomi would have been re referencing. But, even, but she says the problem is it's impossible. She says in verse 11, she says, um, I don't have, I'm not pregnant, Kevin, and I don't have any prospects. No man's knocking down my door. And then she says I'm, in verse 12, she says, I'm too old to even take a husband. I just got my AARP card in the mail the other day. And she says, I'm not going to have a husband. I'm too old. If you're on AARP, I'm not saying you're old. Anybody in here on AARP? Kevin, you know. Yeah, American Association of Retarded Persons, maybe. She says, but even if I did, even if I did have a husband, and even if I could bear a son, verse 13, are you going to wait around until he's grown? 
You know, that only happened one time in the Bible that I, that I was able to find there in Genesis 38 when Judah told Tamar to wait around till his son Shula died up, uh, grew, grew, grew up, and you can marry him. Well, that, that, that just became an entire, you know, it ended up, if you read the story there in Genesis 38, it ended up Judah and Tamar got together and all types of mess went on, and God wasn't honored in all that uh, mess entirely. That was just a big, that was just a big mess, the whole, the whole situation was a mess. And so Naomi makes reference to this Leverite marriage to try to convince Orpah and Ruth to return to their family and to their God. She says, because I'm no help to you. I don't have a husband. I don't have any more sons. And even if I did have a husband, I'm too old to have a child. And even if I did have a child, are you going to wait around for that child to be old enough to get married? I mean, come on, girls. Let's use some plain, old-fashioned common sense. And so she tries to convince these girls. That's one of the re- excuses she gives to convince these girls to go back to their pagan gods. But not only do I want you to see, but the next thing I want you to see is the return of the lost. Not, the, not only the rule of the Leverite marriage, but the return of the lost. God steps in, like he always does. God steps in. Verse 14, And they lifted up their voice and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But what did Ruth do? Clung to her. Orpah was probably the weaker of the two daughter-in-laws. She started to Bethlehem with Naomi, kissed her, wept, but would not stay. Orpah made the wrong decision and turned back. Perhaps, Perhaps Orpah made the decision that was really in her heart. Perhaps that's really what Orpah wanted to do because that's all Orpah knew was paganism. And so maybe perhaps in her heart she really did want to turn back and so that's what she did. She saw this as a, as a way to do it and so she did it. And she proved, his, his, his decision proved, her decision proved that her heart was back home where she hoped to find a husband. And Orpah at that moment leaves the scene and she's never heard of in Scripture again. We can only assume that Orpah made it back to her family and her gods. She got married to another pagan, had children, and died in paganism and went to hell. That's the only assumption we can make. The Bible does not give us any other assumption. That we may get to heaven and we may find Orpah there. But going on what the Bible, the assumption the Bible leaves us with, unfortunately, that looked like that that's what was in Orpah's heart. Who's to blame for that? Humanly speaking, if Orpah ends up in hell, who's to blame for that? Who? Naomi. Naomi. Because she's the one who convinced her to go back to her gods. Because she didn't want to be embarrassed when she got back home. You see, folks, when bitterness and sin affects, sets in, it doesn't only affect you, it affects others. It affects others. Number three, the testimony of Ruth. The testimony of Ruth. So now we come to the Moabite woman, Ruth, the star of our story. Naomi was trying to cover up Orpah had given up. Ruth was prepared to stand up. Well, let's look at the countenance of Naomi. 
verse 15. And she said, Behold, thy sister-in-law is gone back unto her people. And notice the next part she says. And to her what? God's. Naomi knew exactly where she was going and what she was going to do when she got back there, but she let her go anyway. Naomi had an opportunity to to drag this woman back to Bethlehem with her. Yes, she would have had to have swallowed some pride, maybe even some ridicule for what she allowed her sons to do, but she had an opportunity to take this girl back where the true and living God was worshipped and taught, but no, because of her own pride, she let her go back knowing she was going to go back to her God's. And she willingly did that. Return thou after thy sister-in-law. She's still trying to convince Ruth to go back to her gods. I mean, notice that Naomi is almost to the point of begging Ruth to go back to her false gods. But sovereignty overruled Naomi's lack of sense, and she refused to listen to her mother-in-law. So not only do we see the countenance of Naomi, but number, but letter B, we see the conversion of Ruth. Look at verse 16. This is just beautiful. Perhaps if, if I was going to give Naomi a break, because I've been kind of hard on her, so, per, so perhaps if I was going to give Naomi a break, perhaps Naomi did speak of the Lord in the home there in Moab. Perhaps she did because therefore we under, from what Ruth says here, she had some knowledge of the God of Israel. So perhaps Naomi did speak of the Lord in the home. And Ruth said, entreat me not to leave thee. Don't ask me to leave you. Or to return for following after thee. For whether thou goest, I will go. Where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people. And what's the last phrase? And thy God, my God. Literally what Ruth says is, Hakim Elohim, Hakim Elohim. Your sovereign Lord is going to be my sovereign Lord. God stepped in in the life of Ruth and converted her on the spot. It was not a big fanfare. It was, no, it was no fireworks. It was just Ruth realizing who the true living God actually was. Now, Ruth didn't want to go back for a number of reasons. Probably, number one, she didn't want to go back because she loved Naomi. Oh, these, both of those girls, I believe, loved Naomi with all their hearts. And I believe that even Orpah, who actually, whose heart I believe was still in Moab, had pains leaving Naomi. I believe that. I believe these two girls love their mother-in-law, and I believe she loved them. And that's why one of the reasons I don't believe that Ruth wanted to go back and begged Naomi not to make her go back. But you know the second reason I think that Ruth really did not want to go back? Because somewhere along that journey, the sovereignty of God went in, and it changed Ruth's heart. And now she knew that if she went back to Moab, they would, she would be surrounded by false gods. But she'd find the true and living God in Bethlehem, and that's where she wanted to be. You see, folks, when somebody gets saved, they always want to be where the true and living God is, is talked about. I don't want to go back. Where you, you, where you go, I will go. Where you s- 
Stay, I will stay. Your people be my people, and your God, my, my God. Where you die, I'll die. And I'll be buried there. The Lord so do to me, and more also, if I ought, if ought but death part you and me. This woman not only loved Naomi, she loved God now. Somewhere, like I said, somewhere along that journey, God stepped in and sovereignly saved this young girl. And Ruth's conversion is, an, is evidence of the sovereign grace of Almighty God. That God doesn't ask our permission. God doesn't stand at the door and knock and beg us to open it. God just comes in and changes the heart. Because listen, church, if God didn't come in and change the heart, mankind, none of us, would ever be saved because we can't change our own hearts. A leopard can't change his spots. And neither can you change your hearts, and neither can I. God has to invade the human dead heart and change it and raise it to spiritual life. And that's what he did for Ruth. He invaded that pagan heart and he changed it sovereignly, graciously, instantly, and eternally changed that pagan woman's heart and turned it toward him. You know, her circumstances were against her. I mean, she could have been bitter at the God of Israel too because you, that's, that's what the God you serve does to people. He killed your husband and he killed your two sons. Our, my husband, is that what your God does? I mean, Ruth could have become bitter too. But that's not what she did. She chose to stay, and she chose to worship. But there was one problem with that law. There was one problem with what Ruth was doing. And that was the law of God. You know, Ruth says, where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Your people will be my people, and my God will be your God. Well, there was a problem with that. God made a declaration. God made a declaration back in Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verse 3 where he says this, An Ammonite or Moabite shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. Even to their tenth generation shall they not enter into the congregation of the Lord forever. What's God say? God placed a curse on the Ammonites and the Moabites that they could never enter into fellowship with the Lord. What was Ruth? She was a Moabite. So we got a problem here. God made a declaration by His law that a Moabite woman cannot enter into the, into the congregations and fellowship with God. So how is Ruth being a Moabite, a Moabite's woman, how is she going to get in? She's going to get in, church, because of grace. She's going to get in because of grace. Now, people do all types of calculations. Well, and I've, I've read after so many people, they say, well, Ruth was actually the 11th generation, so it doesn't really count. Well, I don't think God was speaking about actual generations. I believe God was talking about for all time and eternity. I believe God uses, is using hyperbole there like he does a lot in the Old Testament, and he's talking about a forever type of deal. So how's Ruth going to get in? How's she going to bypass the command of God and get in? I like what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 56, verse 1. Thus saith the Lord, keep ye my judgment and do justice, for my salvation is near to come and my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man that doeth this and the son of man that layeth hold on it, that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it and keepeth his hand from doing any evil. Neither let the son of the stranger 
who hath joined himself to the Lord, speaks, saying, The Lord hath utterly separated me from his people, neither let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. You know, as you come to verse 3 there, a brand new thought is being introduced. Now look what he says in verse 6. Also the sons of the stranger that joined themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord to be his servants, everyone that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it and taketh hold of my covenant, even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon my altar, for mine house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. Now what's, what's beautiful going on here? God said, here's the law. No Ammonite and no Moabite can enter my, my congregation, can enter my fellowship, unless, Isaiah 56, unless they join themselves to the Lord and serve Him and love His name. So even the curse of the Ammonite and the Moabite that God proclaimed in Deuteronomy 23 could be lifted and changed if the person joined and loved and served God. You see, folks, even back in the Old Testament, God may have cursed uh, 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 the Canaanites, but who got saved? Rahab. Rahab. God may have cursed the Moabites, but who got saved? Ruth. Because by sovereign grace, they joined themselves to the Lord and served the Lord and loved the Lord's name. And so the wonderfulness of God's grace is seen in the conversion of Ruth. That He turns no one away. It's just like Jesus said in John chapter 6 and verse 37. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. And the same was true in the Old Testament as is true in the New Testament. Law excludes us from God's family, but grace includes us if we put our faith in Christ. You see, folks, we're no different than the Ammonites and the Moabites were, are we? Because the law of God was keeping us out of heaven. Because we could not obey God's law. God's law was keeping us from the fellowship with God. But grace stepped in and changed the disposition of our heart. And Jesus says, if you come to me, I'm not going to turn you away. God said to the Old Testament people, I've cursed you as a nation, but if you individually come to me, I'm not going to turn you away. I'm not going to turn you away. And as you read the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew 4, you find the names of five women. Now, admittedly, four of whom have questionable credentials. You find the name Tamar in the, in the, in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Well, she had incestuous relationships with her father-in-law. She's questionable, but she's in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. ruh -roh. Rahab was a Gentile harlot that was saved in Canaan. In Joshua chapter 2 and verse 5, you know, the, the one that hell, uh, hid the spies? Ruth was an outcast Gentile woman. And Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, was an adulteress. How did these four women overcome the dreads of the law of their actions and get to be part of the genealogy of Messiah? The sovereign grace and mercy of God. 
Because the sovereign grace of God, the mercy of God, overcomes everything. Everything. Thank <laughs> you.